Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. In this episode, I'm going to ramble a bit before I get to reciting my latest unsold Star Trek The Next Generation pitch, because a couple of things have been going on. Twitter has been sold to Elon Musk. There's a new Star Trek series premiering in about a week. Lots of things going on in the world that one way or other affect this podcast. So I thought I'd start with some of that. First thing I want to mention is I just posted a question on Twitter that I thought was kind of fun. It occurred to me that it might be really cool if all of the Star Trek series, I mean all of them going back to the original series, were filmed in the currently popular sitcom documentary style where the characters routinely break the fourth wall and address the camera like you see in shows like The Office. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to think about different Star Trek series being shot that way. So I asked on Twitter, which character would you want to see breaking the fourth wall and addressing you directly to the camera? And I've gotten some, I've gotten some great, great replies. Morn, Quark, the Gorn from the episode Arena, Khan, and of course, then I had to write back to that person and say, yeah, but which con? Ricardo Montalban con or Benedict Cumberbatch con? Fortunately, the person said Ricardo Montalban because we both agreed there is only one con. After about two hours, I've gotten 540-some interactions on Twitter with my question. Doesn't mean I've gotten that many answers to my question, but I've gotten that many people looking at it at any rate. Which reminds me of a few months ago when I first realized that I could do this kind of thing on Twitter. I had been thinking about the old 1960s science fiction anthology series, The Outer Limits, which is one of my favorite things in the world. And I was thinking about how at three years old, I saw the pilot episode of The Outer Limits and this glowing radioactive alien creature that appeared on my TV screen scared the living shit out of me and I ran upstairs and hid. So I, I asked on Twitter for people to tell me their most vivid, formative experience with a scary creature or alien or monster that just stuck with them and they couldn't shake. I got 20,000 responses to that tweet. It, it amazed me at the time and it still amazes me today. So I'm hoping maybe I'll come close to 20,000 with today's tweet. Who knows? We'll see what happens. I'll keep checking in as I record this. I also want to mention, I just taped uh, an appearance on a very cool podcast, The Trexperts Briefing Room. Look for it at your nearest podcast store. It was a very fun experience. We actually did tape two episodes in one sitting, dealing with two of my scripts for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Well, two of the episodes I worked on anyway, For the Cause and Who Mourns for Mourn. And it was fun to talk about For the Cause because I never really talk about that that much because I didn't write the script. They bought the story from me. And then Ron Moore, the brilliant Ron Moore, actually wrote the script from my story, added a lot to it, of course, but still kept the core concept of my story, which is that Commander Sisko, the commander of the space station Deep Space Nine, begins to suspect that his girlfriend, Cassidy Yates, is smuggling supplies to some bad guys who are causing trouble for the Federation. Yeah, and the episode is called For the Cause. I'll be talking about that more in an upcoming, uh, upcoming episode 
of Farfetched. But it was funny talking about that episode for the cause with the, the two hosts of the podcast, because there's a there's a bad guy in this episode, Eddington, chief of security for the station Deep Space Nine, who turns out to be a traitor. He turns out to be working for the Maquis, these bandits that Cassidy Yates is also smuggling for. And the the host the host of the podcast started talking about this actor Ken Marshall who portrayed Eddington, and we got to talking about uh, Ken Marshall's career. Uh, he does great work in Deep Space Nine. It turns out this this episode was the first chapter in a multi episode story arc involving the character of Eddington and his antagonistic relationship with Commander Cisco. It's the way this episode uh, turns out. Cisco actually loses out. Cisco loses his battle with Eddington, which is a very interesting thing to have happen in a Star Trek series or, or any kind of TV series. So we're talking about this actor, Ken Marshall, and what other work he's done. And one of the hosts of the podcast immediately mentions the movie Krull. And I just had to laugh because Krull, Krull is a movie that has always kind of fascinated me. And it was just funny to bring it up in this conversation about Star Trek. It turns out the actor, Ken Marshall, who played Eddington in Deep Space Nine, was the lead uh, in the movie Krull. He played a prince. Krull is this bizarre, completely wigged out hybrid of a science fiction film and a fantasy film. It's got a prince. It's got a princess. It's got a horrible monster. It's It's got laser rifles. It's just this weird mix of, of tropes that never quite works. And as I said, the actor Ken Marshall played the heroic prince. Unfortunately, the character was never really very well defined, so... It just kind of lays there. The whole movie just kind of lays there. In the words of my friend Rich, a completely juiceless movie. And sad to say, Ken Marshall's portrayal of the prince is pretty juiceless too. But all that is to say, to lead up to the fact that he's really good in this Deep Space Nine episode. He's really good in the episode for the cause. And I'm sure he's just as good with in the other episodes that make up his his short-lived uh, character arc on Deep Space Nine. Not bad work. He he has a few really good moments. He gives a very eloquent speech defending the Maquis, uh, who they feel have been wronged by the Federation. And by the time he's done with his speech, you almost start feeling like, well, maybe I should be on Eddington's side. He kind of makes some good points there. It's time to move on to one of my unsold Star Trek pitches. This one says at the very top, data number one. When I was preparing to do this podcast a couple days ago, the Trexperts briefing room, I started looking over the script for the, for the episode for the cause, and I was very happy to discover that I still had the original story treatment for this episode for the cause. The original story that they bought from me that Ron Moore then turned into a full-fledged shooting script. So I was thrilled to find the uh, treatment, and I was amused to see at the top of the first page in my handwriting, Upstairs to Ira. What that means is whoever I pitched this story to, and I'm, I'm guessing it was Ron Moore since he ended up writing the script from my story, liked my pitch enough to say, you know what? I think we can uh, work with this. I'm going to take this upstairs to Ira. Ira Bear being the showrunner for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So having this notation on the treatment is kind of cool because that meant I had just moved up another rung on the ladder of writing for Star Trek. 
I had pitched a story that had piqued the interest of the producer who was taking my pitch, and that producer was about to take it upstairs to Ira to see if Ira would like it and to see if they would want to go ahead and buy the story, which they did, which was great. But the story I'm going to pitch to you today is a data story. And I have just read the first page, and that's all I really know. I haven't read the whole thing. I don't know if this uh, script is going to be one of my favorites or not. It's just titled Data Number One. And as with last time, I, I don't know if that means that this is the first data story I ever pitched, or if it's just the first story of four that I had lined up for that day's pitch. Regardless, here it is, data number one. In 10 Forward, Data, LaForge, Troy, Riker, and Worf are engaged in an animated discussion about the meaning of courage when someone recalls that this day is the anniversary of the death of Tasha Yar. They drink a toast to their friend and agree that whatever courage is, Tasha possessed it in abundance. Worf observes that dying in the line of duty is a mark of courage, and they toast again. The toast is interrupted by a summons to the bridge where they learn that Captain Picard has placed the ship on yellow alert in response to the news that Starfleet has placed them under a complete blackout. End teaser. Now, right there, I'm taking a risk by mentioning the death of Tasha Yar, the security chief who was brutally and unceremoniously killed off in one of the early episodes of the show, inexplicably to many fans, including myself. So it's a little bit of a risk there, uh, bringing up the name Tasha Yar, bringing up that character. But what the hell, it fit the story. Act 1. Admiral Kiernan of Starfleet comes aboard the Enterprise for a private briefing with Picard, and the whole ship is abuzz with rumors. Someone has discovered that this whole sector of Federation space is affected by Starfleet's blackout, or ban on communications and there is speculation that the Federation may be under attack. In Picard's office, the Admiral tells Picard that the blackout was imposed because of the discovery of a colossal alien probe that has entered Federation space at warp speed on a course that will bring it uncomfortably close to Earth. See what I did there? Instead of saying it's heading directly towards Earth, I said it's coming uncomfortably close to Earth. Sometimes those subtleties make a big difference. To resume... This object was first discovered two weeks earlier by a remote Federation science outpost. The outpost tried in vain to communicate with the probe, then tried to intercept it with probes of their own, only to have them destroyed by the intruder. Kiernan explains that the intruder is at present doing nothing more than scanning everything in its path, taking pictures more or less, but that the destruction of the science station's probes has alarmed the Federation, because of this, the Enterprise is being drafted to find out all it can about the probe, its makers, and its intentions before it reaches the solar system. Picard is agreeable until Kiernan tells him that their only chance to find out more is to get someone onto or into the probe, that that person will be one of Picard's officers, and that Starfleet's best strategists consider it a suicide mission. Kiernan then tells Picard that he has come to request that Data undertake the assignment. Kiernan's logic is that no one is better equipped to make the attempt, no one is better equipped to find out the answers, and no one stands a better chance of figuring out how to do it without dying in the process. Picard realizes that there is also an unspoken assumption that it is easier to ask a machine to undertake a suicide mission 
than to ask a human being, but Kiernan assures him that it will be Data's decision entirely, and that he is free to decline, no questions asked. In the ready room, Kiernan and Picard outline the mission to Data and LaForge, neither of whom has been told that the mission hinges on Data's involvement. Kiernan explains that the intruder consists of a scanning array forward and an impenetrable hull on top, bottom, sides, and rear. They cannot scan the intruder from behind because of its hull. It must be scanned from the front, but the intruder will destroy anything that approaches it from the front. Because it can't be scanned, there are no transport coordinates, and no possibility of using the transporter. Kiernan's plan is this. The Enterprise will pull up behind the intruder, match its speed, and bring its warp field into play with that of the intruder. Someone will use a shuttlecraft to journey from the Enterprise to the intruder, the shuttlecraft being propelled by the Enterprise's tractor beam, since its impulse drive will not function inside the warp fields, sneaking up on it from behind, and then turning to enter its sensor array at such close range that its defenses will, it is hoped, not even know he's there. Kiernan asks Data and LaForge for their candid assessments of the plan, and they are both extremely negative. It is, they both claim, built on a series of extremely speculative theories. Kiernan prods, and Data admits that the scheme could work. Geordi agrees, but he says that he wouldn't want to be the guy inside the shuttlecraft. He too feels that it is a suicide mission. Kiernan says that if the mission is to go ahead, it will be Data who attempts the crossing. Data agrees instantly, if not happily. LaForge protests, but Picard reiterates that Kiernan is making a request, not giving an order. Data understands, but he still agrees, since he understands that the mission must be done, or at least attempted. Picard will not accept this answer, and he asks Data to consider the request for 24 hours. They have that long until the intruder is in range anyway. Data thanks Picard and promises to consider all sides of the matter before making up his mind. End Act 1 Act 2 Geordi tries to dissuade Data from going on a mission whose every element is based on theory. He shows Data in great detail every risk that he will run to get from the Enterprise into the intruder. Depending on the clumsy tractor beam to guide the shuttlecraft, breaching the two warp fields, riding a powerless shuttlecraft at warp speed, and finally sneaking past the intruder's formidable defenses, not to mention what hazards he might find inside the probe, and then the equally hazardous crossing back to the Enterprise if he survives that far. Data agrees with everything LaForge says, but he compares the situation to that of the mouse who had to tie the bell around the neck of the sleeping cat, and reminds Geordi how important it is that the Federation finds out the origin and purpose of the intruder. And although his chances of successfully completing and surviving the mission are extremely slim, he says they are still several times greater than Geordi's or anyone else's chances would be. Geordi can't dispute that, but he reminds Data that this particular cat weighs a half a million metric tons and seems to be a very light sleeper. In any event, Data is still undecided and appreciates Geordi's advice. Data consults with Riker, who tells him quite candidly not to do it. Riker does not consider it worth Data's life to find out more about the intruder. He is confident that the Enterprise could neutralize any threat the intruder may present, if indeed it does present a threat. When Data mentions Worf's statement that dying in the line of duty is courageous, 
Riker scoffs and says that in this case, it's foolish. Riker's advice is quickly forgotten when the news comes to Data through Admiral Kiernan that the intruder has destroyed a Ventaxian patrol ship that fired on it. Although its crew was small, there were no survivors. There is no doubt that this was an act of self-defense, but it raises serious questions about the intruder's destructive capabilities and for what they may be intended. In light of this news, Data goes to Counselor Troy for guidance. Although Data does not seem to fear death, Troy finds that one aspect of the mission troubles him, the possibility that he may fail to find answers to any of Starfleet's questions about the intruder, in which case he might die for nothing. Troy tells him that that would not mean that he lived for nothing. He has done great good and changed many lives for the better. Data seems to appreciate these words, and he asks Troy if she believes in an afterlife. She says she does, and she asks Data if he does. He says he does for her, but not for himself. Troy says that he is a living being, and that where life is concerned, she believes that anything is possible. Data thanks Troy for her help, and he goes directly to Captain Picard's office. There he informs Picard and Kiernan that he has decided to accept the mission. End Act 2. I'm just going to break in here for a second and say that for those of you who care, my tweet has now had 601 impressions. I'll keep you posted. On the deck of the shuttlecraft bay, LaForge gives Picard a tour of the shuttle Data will use for the crossing. The main points of interest are the beefed-up deflector shields to protect the craft when it breaches the two warp fields, and the slave device that will enable Data to control the Enterprise's tractor beam, that will in turn control the shuttle. Picard is clearly displeased with the prospect of Data controlling the craft in this way, and LaForge agrees but reminds him that this is the only way it can possibly be done, and that Data is quite likely the only person in Starfleet who could possibly do it. Data is alone at the personal science console in his quarters reviewing all available information on the intruder, plotting out his best approach, estimating the probe's power and destructive capabilities, etc. To his surprise and displeasure, even the computer considers the mission impossible. When he is through, he opens the doors to his quarters to find the other officers waiting for him, shouting surprise and breaking into a chorus of, for he's a jolly good fellow. Data is taken aback. He has never been the object of a surprise party before, and he does not know how to react. Troy breaks the ice and explains that they all wanted to do something before the mission to show him how much they all cared for him. Data gets the idea, but nearly ruins the whole party by innocently comparing it to a wake. Chief O'Brien quickly characterizes it as an Irish wake, and the idea appeals to everyone, Data included. The party begins with everyone wishing Data luck, expressing their confidence in his abilities and their gratitude for what he will try to do, and ultimately letting him know that they love him and will miss him. Toasts turn into a roast, with everyone sharing stories of Data's life aboard the Enterprise, ending with a speech by Captain Picard which Data says he would be pleased to have for an epitaph. The party breaks up on a somber note, and Data returns to his science console to record a message on his personal log. It is a message to his brother Lore, in which he announces his death, an announcement he expects will please Lore. He expresses his regret for the pain his own creation has caused Lore, and his wish that they could have known each other better. Aside from that which he feels for the loss of his offspring Lal, he says that the only regret he has is for the way things have ended up between himself and Lore, 
He says goodbye and signs off just as the bridge signals him that the intruder has come within range. End Act 3. Act 4. As the Enterprise prepares to give chase, Data relinquishes his post on the bridge to a supernumerary and says his final goodbyes to the assembled officers. Data alone wishes to keep the scene short, not out of any desire to avoid a scene, but simply because he wishes to get on with the mission. His friends, who all wish they could delay his departure, must reluctantly allow him to do so. Riker escorts Data to the shuttlecraft bay, giving him his final brief, explaining that the craft will be pushed out of the bay and then picked up by the tractor beam, at which time it will come under Data's control. His progress will be monitored closely from the bridge, and Dr. Crusher will monitor his life signs as well. Riker wishes Data good fortune and tells him that what he is doing shows real courage. Data says goodbye and enters the craft. Riker returns to the tense bridge as the ship matches the intruder's speed and takes position behind it. It is visible on the screen now, a huge metallic projectile, its frontal sensor array hidden from the Enterprise's view. On Picard's command, the Enterprise begins the slow approach, which will bring its own warp field into play with that of the intruder. Geordi reminds them all that there must be no gap between the fields, for if the shuttlecraft falls outside of the warp fields, it will be instantly vaporized. Meanwhile, Data's shuttlecraft has been nudged out of the bay. Data begins manipulating it with the ship's tractor beam and finds this to be a very imprecise mode of travel. He almost immediately crashes the shuttlecraft against the hull of the Enterprise and realizes that navigating in a subspace warp field within meters of the Enterprise will be even trickier than anyone had imagined. Data slowly guides his shuttlecraft through the turbulent warp field along the hull of the Enterprise several times sending the shuttlecraft perilously inward towards the ship's hull, or outwards towards the edge of the warp field. As the helmsman brings the Enterprise's warp field into play with the intruders, Data maneuvers the battered shuttlecraft ahead of the Enterprise. As Picard, Kiernan, and the others watch their viewer, Data successfully guides the shuttlecraft as it breaches the warp fields, and he sends it into the intruder's field. Data signals that he has survived the crossing, and informs the Admiral that another of his theories has just been proven a fact, but Geordi has just found that the Enterprise's tractor beam will not reach into the intruder's warp field. Data quickly finds himself drifting toward the edge of the intruder's warp field. With only moments to act, Data devises a plan. With blinding speed, he polarizes and rechannels the shuttlecraft's power to turn its hull into a huge magnet, on the chance that it will be caught in the magnetic field that he has found surrounding the intruder. The gambit works, and the shuttlecraft is slowly drawn back towards the relative safety of the intruder's hull. Data's next problem is to find some way to move his shuttlecraft forward to enter the probe through the only aperture in its hull, its forward scanning array. With more blindingly quick work, he is able to manipulate the magnetically charged hull of the shuttlecraft to create a crude induction coil, and the shuttlecraft begins to crawl along the intruder's magnetic field towards the forward sensor array. Data's signal to the Enterprise that he is all right and on his way is met by a nearly audible sigh of relief. Data himself seems very pleased that despite it all, he is still alive. He does a quick calculation and finds that his odds are improving steadily the further he goes. If he can sneak past the intruder's forward defenses, he'll be in. The officers on the bridge of the Enterprise watch breathlessly as Data's tiny shuttlecraft creeps alongside the hull of the intruder riding the unexpected magnetic field. 
They listen as Data marks off his approach to the intruder's defense perimeter, and after a much too long pause, declares that he has gotten safely past it. Suddenly, Worf looks up from his console and announces that a Ventaxian patrol ship is approaching the intruder in attack mode. Picard warns Data and hails the Ventaxians, but they ignore him. The vengeful Ventaxian ship opens fire on the intruder. The shuttlecraft lurches and groans, and a quick reading tells Data that as the intruder's defenses are triggered, its magnetic field is becoming a violent maelstrom. The shuttlecraft is moving faster and faster and being torn at by immense stresses as the intruder prepares to open fire on the Ventaxian ship. As Data roots all his power to his shields, he sends a final signal to the Enterprise that he is not going to make it. Then the intruder vaporizes the Ventaxian ship. On the Enterprise's view screen, the shuttlecraft disappears behind the intruder, and there's a flash of light. Crusher looks up from her silent console and says that Data is gone. End Act 4 Act 5 The combination of the Ventaxian attack and the shuttlecraft's penetration of the intruder's forward defenses triggers a violent reaction. Without warning, the huge probe sends out a burst of disruptive energy in all directions, violently pummeling the unprepared Enterprise. There is severe damage to the ship, and its shields have been all but destroyed. Picard orders the helm to pull back from the intruder several hundred kilometers, but to maintain the chase nonetheless on the chance that Data may still be alive and will need their help to get back safely. Admiral Kiernan decides that the attack has sent a clear message about the intruder's destructive capabilities. He signals Starfleet to send three more Galaxy-class ships to intercept the probe, and he orders the Enterprise to give up the chase so that repairs can be made. Once the repairs are done, he tells Picard, the Enterprise will join the other ships in an attempt to stop the intruder. Picard fights him on this, insisting that their immediate duty is to maintain contact with the intruder and to be on the ready if Data's shuttlecraft reappears. Kiernan reluctantly overrides him, and Picard has no choice but to drop away from the intruder and slowly decelerate to sublight speed. Geordi has not given up, however. He maintains sensor contact with the intruder for as long as he absolutely can, and when he is just about to lose contact, he gets a reading that the shuttlecraft has appeared outside the stern hull of the intruder. Crusher gets no life readings, and the powerless craft is drifting out of the intruder's warp field. If the Enterprise is not there to catch it, it will enter real space at warp 6 and be vaporized. Over the Admiral's vehement objections, Picard orders the Enterprise to overtake the intruder, once again, Geordi performs the delicate operation of bringing the two warp fields into play, and as an angry Kiernan bursts onto the bridge, Geordi pulls the shuttlecraft through the breach in the fields. The Enterprise immediately drops out of warp speed, and as Picard, Riker, LaForge, Kiernan, and Crusher hurry to the transporter room, O'Brien beams Data aboard from the shuttlecraft. Data appears, alive and well, to the great relief of Picard and the others. There were no life readings because the shuttlecraft systems were all but destroyed. Data seems rather pleased to have returned safely, and makes the startling admission that he did not feel ready to die. He tells Picard and Kiernan that he has good news about the intruder. He was able to communicate with it, and it helped him to escape by sending him through an aperture in its stern hull. He explains that the intruder does not threaten the Earth or the Federation. It is on a mission to gather data about the galaxy, and then return to its home planet on the far side of the galaxy. The destruction of the probes and of the Ventaxian ships were regrettable actions triggered by the intruder's automatic defenses. 
Data assures them that these incidents will not be repeated so long as no one ventures into the path of the intruder. Kiernan sighs heavily and apologizes to Picard for his rashness, and leaves to signal Starfleet with the news. As they head for the bridge, Data tells the others that he left a message with the probe inviting its makers to make contact with the Federation, but he says that the probe will not get back to its home planet for 50,000 years. Picard hopes, nonetheless, that 50,000 years from now they accept Data's invitation. Data agrees, and says that he also hopes that he will be around to greet them when they come. The End So, now that I've read that story treatment for the first time in 20-some years, how do I feel about it? Well, I feel pretty good. I think it's a good story. It's a, it's a bit derivative of the spec script that I wrote uh, that got me in the door at Star Trek The Next Generation, a script called Between Two Darknesses, which I read in the first couple of episodes of this podcast. They're still there if you want to hear. Uh, in that script, the entire crew of the Enterprise loses their will to live, and Data is the only person who can save them, but Data cannot understand how anyone could lose the will to live. So this kind of flips that idea on its head and makes Data the one who has to deal with his own possible mortality. And I think that part of the story works really well. There are some things that strike me as maybe not the smartest decisions that I could have made coming in from outside to, to uh, pitch this idea as, a, as a, uh, an outsider, as a freelancer. First of all, it's very effects heavy. There's, there's a lot of ship-to-ship stuff going on. Lot of lot of fancy special effects. Of course, special effects cost money, so that could be a stumbling block for a script like this. There's also the fact that, I don't know if I was aware of this at the time I originally wrote this story, but um, there are some aspects of this story that are that harken back to some moments in previous uh, Star Trek episodes. Namely, Star Trek, the original series, one of my all-time favorite episodes of that show, The Doomsday Machine, I am quite sure I had the Doomsday Machine in mind when I was writing this story because the similarities are pretty clear. Also, there's an episode from the original series where uh, Spock sort of goes rogue when the Enterprise has encountered this giant amoeba in space and Spock takes off on his own. I can't remember if he's in a shuttlecraft. I guess he's in a shuttlecraft and he actually enters the amoeba to try to figure out what the hell it is. So in my story, Data is kind of taking over that Spock role. Also, Spock does the exact same thing in Star Trek The Motion Picture. When the Enterprise arrives inside, deep inside the belly of V'ger, and there are still so many unanswered questions, Spock goes rogue a little bit, uh, puts on a spacesuit, and, and zooms into the center of V'ger to try to understand what this thing is and what its intentions are. So yeah, some similarities to some earlier Star Trek episodes, that's that's not always a good thing. So if I were to go back and redo this story, I may I would probably address uh, those issues. I'm not sure how I could cut out cut down on the effects, honestly, but I would look for ways to do that. I also find it regrettable rereading this that these uh, these Ventaxian aliens that show up, are I really treated them as throwaways. Nobody's ever heard of the Ventaxians. I think I just came up with that name and threw them in there as a convenient little plot complication. Uh, but that's not really fair to the Ventaxians. There's probably more of a story to be told there. And the fact that I just sort of use them as throwaways is just not doing them justice. 
Another weakness in the script, I think, is the alarming, alarming amount of meaningless technobabble that I have stuffed into this script. Warp fields, magnetic fields, tractor beams, my God, and how they all work together and interact with each other and, and destroy each other. It's almost too much. Of course, Star Trek relies on this kind of thing for plot mechanisms, but I think there is a point at which it gets to be too much, and I think this script comes dangerously close to the too much point. Another problem with the script is that <laughs> we, we all know Data's not going to die. Of course he's not going to die. So you make the story about Data dealing with the possibility of dying. That's what makes it work. As a writer, you can build up a, a certain amount of suspense around what might happen, what bad things might happen. Maybe he won't die, but something else bad will happen. But there's a limit to how much you can do that. So basically, you just make the story about Data dealing with the idea of death, and that's, that's what makes it work. That being said, I really like what goes on in this story between uh, Data and Jordy. Their, their friendship has always been one of the uh, most appealing aspects of Star Trek The Next Generation. To me, those two characters are, are they just, they make, gr they make great companions. They make great friends. And it was fun to be able to, to be able to play with that friendship and actually, I think, strengthen that friendship in the course of this story. So that, that I really like about the story. And the whole idea of Data coming to terms with whether it's a courageous act or not to give up one's life in the name of duty. Does Data really die? Nobody really knows. Can Data be scared? Nobody really knows. Is Data courageous? That's hard to say. Is he courageous or is he just programmed to be courageous? Interesting things to think about. Well, there are now 628 impressions on Twitter to my question about which character in Star Trek you would like to see break the fourth wall and address the camera. I'm not getting very many people answering that question, but a lot of people are at least looking at the question, and I hope you're amused a little and you'll come back and want to listen to more of the podcast. If you want to answer the question on Twitter, please feel free. My handle is at MarkO'Connell underscore one. That's at M-A-R-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L underscore one. That'll take you to my Twitter account and you can answer the question. If you have an opinion or would like to post a review, I encourage you to do so. It's nice to get feedback from people. This is Mark O'Connell, and you've been listening to some stories that are pretty far-fetched. 